Final thought. Any regrets about anything that went on in the pre-fights and all the news conferences? Negative. I'm good. I beat Polly. I left with his belt and his girl. Adrian, congratulations on winning the title. Polly, come on in. I'm just saying, you lost. I know, I know I lost. But, but don't, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't, hold on, wait, wait, don't brag so, about so taking my side piece. Don't brag about taking my side piece, though. That's my side piece. You don't get laid. All right, all right. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash contrarianprime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O V N I O. Now, time for the podcast. And I'm recording for Contrarian's Corner. Grudgment Day. T2, Grudgment Day. Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Oh, I guess welcome for our new listeners, but uh, I assume we'll be bringing in a bevy of new listeners as we tackle this 2013 Christmas Day masterpiece. Julio, we have been on a stretch here with uh, Sylvester Stallone uh, for our patrons with the uh, King of Comedy episode with Bobby De Niro. Um both men, no strangers to the contrarians, but today we bring them together. And no, it's not Copland. It's for a rematch that was 30 years in the making. Man, I didn't even remember that. This is not the, the first De Niro-Stallone collaboration. No, and hopefully it's not the last. <laughs> they need to close the trilogy. They've been cops together. They've been boxes together. They need to be criminals together in the next one. Yeah, like uh, bank robbers or some shit. Or just like in a Guy Ritchie movie. They're, I don't know, looking for a diamond of some sort. The next Scorsese movie. <laughs> yes. Well, the main thing is Stallone has to be the hero somehow is what we got to figure out. That's where we got to get to. But Julio, we are here today to discuss 2013's American sports comedy film directed by Peter Siegel, Grudge Match. Starring Sylvester Stallone, Robert De Niro, Kevin Hart, Alan Arkin, uh, Kim Basinger to a lesser extent. And John Bernthal, now, Mm -hmm. he is of, correct me if I'm wrong, Walking Dead fame. Yes. I was going to ask you, where do you know John Bernthal from? Because I know him mainly from Walking Dead, but honestly, I think that now, over the world, he's known as the Punisher. Because he was the Punisher on the Netflix show, which I haven't seen yet. Ah. uh, I did not know that, but just his face and like the structure of his jaw, that all makes a lot of sense. (laughs) He looks like the Punisher. All I know about him is Walking Dead and also his Wikipedia page, the picture of him. He's wearing a Gennady Golovkin hat, a Triple G, who's my favorite boxer. So he's already, you know, in my good graces. And it ties it all together with the whole boxing motif. This is him young. 
at least. I mean, not that he's aged much, like, physically, but uh, I, I think personality-wise, attitude-wise, he, he just sounds so uh, just innocent and youthful in this movie compared to just... he. I mean, I know him before before this movie. I just knew him for playing assholes. Oh, and this, yeah, he definitely is the sympathetic character. To He is Robert De Niro's son, and, I mean... If the horrifying CGI surrounding a lot of Robert De Niro in this movie uh, really turns you off, then the love and the tugging of the heartstrings of the story with his son will definitely bring you back in. Well, I mean, uh, I've seen The Irishman, so I've seen the worst the CGI can throw at De Niro, and I survived. So You'd be surprised. Okay. Have you seen the poster for Grudge Match? Trust me, Julio, we'll get to that discussion in the second half as the marketing material for this movie resulted in a lot of confused head scratches from me. If this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, if you're a returning listener, give uh, Julio and myself a moment here while we explain what we do to the new listeners out there. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as we say. We'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, uh, one of those shiny red tomatoes, a lot of times known as Certified Fresh, that stamp of approval, and cut it down to size, point out some of the uh, errors, issues, foibles with the the film, and maybe why it's a bit overrated. Uh, Conversely, we'll find a movie that is rotten, one of those nasty green splotches. We shoot around the 30% and below mark, uh, and we will make a case for the film's positive merit. Grudge Match, clocking in at 31% on Rotten Tomatoes. So in the first half of this podcast, known as Contrarian's Corner, we will be giving it the contrarian treatment. Uh, Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movie in question, they just have to hang around for the second half. That's correct. In the second half, aptly titled Real Talk, this is where we uh, tell you how we really feel, and we tell each other how we really feel. Because uh, in movies like this one, where we haven't really spoken much about them before, we have no idea. I honestly, I know you brought this up before, Alex. I knew you had mm-hmm. seen it, but I don't remember if you like it. And obviously, this was my first time watching it. So you have no idea because I've been very careful about not letting... I haven't given you any clues, any hints on my texts. Uh, I think the only thing I told you was that uh, it, was, it was pretty inspirational how these, these old men got in shape. It really made me feel like a slacker, but it also gave me some hope that uh, I, too, can win a grudge match in the near future. <laughs> to be fair, I didn't remember if I liked it coming into this rewatch. So that oh, it, that's the best. It was, a, it was all fair game. Yeah, we've talked about Sly before and the fountain of youth that he's gone to, the Randy the Ram school <laughs> of the, the needle in the ass principle. Uh, but with Robert De Niro, I'm there with you, man. Watching 70-year-old Bob just you know, get in probably as good a shape as he could for this, it was quite inspirational. And the whole concept of this podcast right now is very timely with the, I don't know if I want to call it controversy, but have you been keeping up with the whole thing about Citizen Kane's ranking on Rotten Tomato, Julio? Yes, somebody at work mentioned that it was it had dropped to 99%. <laughs> yes, and an amazing... Uh, I posted about it on Twitter. It was basically people playing into... Or not playing into, it was people pointing out what we've said from the beginning, and it's that people don't understand how Rotten Tomatoes works. Because like the narrative was, oh, Rotten Tomatoes went and dug up an old review of... Uh, Citizen Kane that said it wasn't good just so they could knock down its rating from 100%. And if you know how it works, that's not what happened. The Chicago <laughs> Tribune, just from their profile, 
posted an old review, negative review for it. So yeah, it affected its rating. And I guess people were saying now Pat Paddleton or not Paddleton. What's the bear movie? Paddington. Paddington. No, yeah. The Peruvian bear. Paddleton is a very good movie with Mark Duplass and Ray Romano. But no bears and no Peruvians. Paddington is a, a CGI bear. People were saying, I guess, that it is now the highest rated movie on Rotten Tomatoes, which I know there's a bunch of movies that are 100%, but I guess what that means is it has the most reviews backing it. Yeah. Well, I get good news for everybody that loves Citizen Kane. It's still the same movie. <laughs> it does not affect your ability to enjoy it one way or the other. Uh, yeah, you're you're beyond. If you already watched Citizen Kane and you liked it, you are beyond anything that Rotten Tomatoes can offer to you. You already decided it's good. It's fresh in your heart. That's right, and that's why we're here to talk about. You can love the movies that you want to love, even if Rotten Tomatoes says you can't. And you can also say movies like American Hustle fucking suck, even despite the fact that they have a very high rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, I really thought you were going to go with, and I have news for all you Citizen Kane fans: it does suck. <laughs> I mean, if if I was a Rotten Tomatoes qualified critic, my review would probably be a green splotch. Damn. A very respectful green splotch, but it would be a green splotch nonetheless. Back to the lecture at hand. Here today, grudge match. As May has sprung, it's a beautiful day here in Austin, Texas, but for the purposes of this movie, we're going to Christmas time, baby. Uh, the release date of December 25th, 2013. Uh, but also the movie, one thing I did forget is it is based around Christmas time. There's Christmas lights and uh, Christmas trees. I think even Christmas carols play at some point uh, in the city. Not a white Christmas, though. That's, no. I think, what threw me off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's Pittsburgh. It's just really sloshy and gross, which I think is an unfair <laughs> portrayal of Pittsburgh. I've been there once in my life, and it's a beautiful city. As I mentioned, directed by Peter Siegel. Have we discussed Mr. Siegel on The Contrarians before? Uh, via osmosis, we did, because he directed Tommy Boy, so that would have had to have come up during our Black Sheep episode. Hmm. Um, also, anger management, <laughs> anger management with Adam Sandler and Jack Nicholson, which I have never seen. Um, 51st Dates, nope, Longest Yard. Get Smart. We, we Did you like Get Smart? I really did. Nah, I'm kind of like mixed on it. If I was a Rotten Tomatoes critic, <laughs> would be, it would be a very respectful green splotch. It's on the level of Citizen Kane. It would be a tomato that is past expiration but still edible. <laughs> You're not going to get sick, but your friends are not going to look at you. It's not aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, I, I guess put, just put two and two together with that, that. The connection with Alan Arkin here as he returned for Grudge Match. Written by Tim Kelleher and Rodney Rothman. You know, Aaron Sorkin, they are not in their filmography. Uh, it looks like the Rodney Rothman character, though, you would be familiar with, Julio, as he wrote and directed Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. What? <laughs> Which, I mean, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but that's our next episode, Alex. That's, uh, man, we couldn't have, We this is not intentional, <laughs> listeners. We, we intentionally planned this to wrap up a little trifecta of De Niro and Stallone, but did not expect a... Uh, the connective thread to be there. Uh, but in addition to that, just Grudge Match and 22 Jump Street are his other writing credentials. Looks like he was a writer on Undeclared, which you know how much I fucking love that show. So He refuses to be pinned down. And the Tim Kelleher gentleman, I'm looking up here to see what his writing credentials are. Um, it's all DC stuff. Yeah, it doesn't look like he has too much in the way of uh, writing experience. Wouldn't know it by watching Grudge Match, though. Julio... 
this box office disaster, unfortunately, so grudge match did come out to pretty mild uh, to a pretty mild response and reception. What uh, were critics saying about this? So we got three quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website. Three rotten quotes. Let's start with Richard Kraus from Richard Kraus. <laughs> That's the name of his website. He says, "Will likely appeal to an older audience who can really get behind the idea of two old timers stepping up and reliving past glories." I feel personally attacked. <laughs> How young is this fucker? <laughs> Nineteen. Richard Kraus Jr. <laughs> Listen, Jr. You will be old someday. And who knows who are you going to be rooting for in whatever movie about old men getting a second chance uh, they make, you know, in the future. In the, I don't know how old he is, but, you know, let's say if he's still alive by 2060, I would like to see what movie really gets Richard Krause pumped up. Uh, whatever Marvel movie comes out. Yes. <laughs> Chris Evans coming back as Captain America one last time. <laughs> Matt Brunson from Film Frenzy says, Muhammad Ali may have had the ability to float like a butterfly and sing like a bee, but 2013's grudge match can do no more than stumble around like a cockroach that's taking a direct hit from a can of Raid. Why did they feel the need to bring Ali into it? I guess just because the day they wrote that review, they learned who Muhammad Ali was in one of his (laughs) expressions or sayings, his catchphrases. As, as preparation for Grouch Match, they watch Ali, Michael Mann's Ali. They listen to your review on After Hours. And they're like, that sounds like a good movie. <laughs> yes, it was uh, almost an hour longer than Grudge Match, but they both felt of the same length. <laughs> uh, and finally, Richard Probes from the IndependentCritic.com says, Really? Did this actually look good on paper? Or was the money just so awesome that it was impossible to pass up? And I would say, if nothing else, of course this looks great on paper. If yeah. you come to me and you say, hey, Rocky versus Raging Bull, no recasting. We got the, the original actors. I'm like, sure, do it. Yeah, and on top of that, the looking good on paper, I mean, Peter Seagal, his, uh, or Peter Siegel, excuse me, not the brother of Steven, uh, Peter Siegel's <laughs> previous movie made almost $250 million dollars. And he has a history of, you know, crowd-pleasing movies. On top of that, you've got 2013 Kevin Hart, right, you know, at the peak of his, or close to the peak of his popularity. The upside's Kevin Hart. <laughs> you got the Academy Award winner, Alan Arkin. Uh, I mean, yes, of course this looked good on paper. And the previous Rocky movie that they made, made a killing. So, uh, yes, it did look good on paper. And no, I don't think the money was outrageous because this had a fairly modest budget of $40 million. I say modest in the sense of who's involved. Um, they did it for the love. The love of the game, the love of the sport. That's right. It's all, it's all about the love of the game. Uh, with the box office return being a very disappointing $45 million, roughly. And we'll get to it in the second half if the timing of it was to blame or just we now live in a world where there's no longer black and white but just shades of gray and people don't want to see shit like this. <laughs> so grudge match begins as all sports movies should with jim lampley uh one of the all-time great boxing commentators and just generally lovable man julio the guy who opens this is a real boxing commentator and as i'm sure you put together by the end of it the commentary team for the actual fight was the actual hbo boxing commentary team well you know it was hbo but yeah, yeah. i figured joe uh, rogan was not there so that confused me a little bit but <laughs> here comes the boom this was not 
Lampley, though, no stranger to the silver screen, had a role in Blades of Glory. And Jim doesn't get his props for his... Um, he's such a good straight man that like some of his lines that he drops are very funny, more so than they would be if he gave it like a Sam Kinison type delivery. So here in the beginning, when he's basically giving us the backstory to the rivalry between Henry Razor Sharp, Sly, and Billy the Kid McDonough, which is uh, Bobby De Niro, talk about their first two fights. Uh, he says, you know, some rivalries are... I can't remember the exact expression he uses, but you know they're forever, they're eternal. And he he references uh, Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan, which really <laughs> made me laugh. And then explains that uh, the kid and Razor had two fights previously, uh, thirty years prior to where the movie is set. Uh, in the first, uh, Robert De Niro won, I believe, by decision, and then the second, Razor quickly dispatched him. I think they said like a fourth round knockout and. The third fight was announced in 2B when Razor, without explanation, announced his retirement and you know withdrew from the game, which, of course, led to Robert De Niro, uh, Billy the Kid McDonough being very... Uh, he held a grudge, if I could use a poor pun, because he missed out on the redemption of the fight, but also the big payday. And it had been 30 years since, and the fire still clearly burned in each of them, despite them saying, eh, you know, it's... Nothing I'm worried about now. Um, Julio kind of sprinkles of real boxing elements to this. Obviously, the idea of the rubber match, but I'm sure there's other examples of it. But to me, one of the biggest ones in 2003, I believe, Lennox Lewis, who was the heavyweight champion of the world, had a fight with Vitaly Klitschko that was a pretty controversial fight and that Lewis was kind of getting his ass kicked. And then Vitaly got cut really bad and they had to cut the stop the fight due to the the intensity of his cut, and so they announced the rematch, and then uh, in the build to it, Lennox Lewis just said, no, I'm retiring. I, I, I'm pulling out of this. So very similar to this. The difference being Lennox Lewis didn't have the, the balls of a Robert De Niro or Sylvester Stallone as he never actually came back to, to fight years later. He didn't have a Kim Basinger or an Alan Arkin on his side to, uh, <laughs> to really inspire him. I guess, actually, he didn't have a Kevin Hart just orchestrating the whole thing. <laughs> No, I, I'm sure he had plenty of sleazy promoters that tried to make it happen, but none of them had the infectious charm of Kevin Hart. Now, I was about to say, don't you call Kevin Hart sleazy? Oh, no, never. He's the heart it, of the movie. In uh, the beginning here, though, when uh, Jim is recapping these fights, I mean, Julio, they speak of the uncanny valley, and they have these <laughs> fights between what are supposed to be you know, retroactively young Sylvester Stallone and Robert De Niro to the point where it almost looks like a video game, like a demo that you would see at like E3 or something. Now, CGI and Robert De Niro are not things that you think about. They're not synonymous with one another. And coming into this, you are going to be satiated and fill, you're going to have your fill for life with CGI and Robert De Niro. Now, is that good or bad? I mean, that's in the eye of the beholder. But what I can say is this movie and you know the courage of De Niro to actually go along with this and the the CGI aspect of it, it definitely makes this movie memorable. Yeah, well, I think that there's a obviously this movie is from eight years ago, and in the years since, the technology has gotten better. So it is actually, I, I put it on the positive side with the context of the year 2021 to say that the CGI the the rejuvenated Robert De Niro in this movie looks better than the young Robert De Niro in The Irishman. That you know, so that should tell you who put more effort in their special effects. 
uh, Seagal or Scorsese. By the end of this, the true grudge match is going to be Peter Siegel and Martin Scorsese and just us comparing and contrasting who got the most <laughs> out of De Niro in the boxing realm. Yeah. And, and and Sly, I mean, I don't know. He's never aged, really, on the outside. So to me, it was just like, oh, this is just another variation of of what he looks like when he's young. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fair assessment. The complexity and... Um, wow factor of cgi robert de niro it's it's not lost on me the simplicity of the title did you see just it looks like they just used times new roman and just typed up grudge match and then superimposed it on the screen you know typically in something like this you would think of the the smash cut to a black screen with like big red letters that say grudge match but no it's just overlaid i think it's where they show uh, sylvester stallone's home is under a bridge in pittsburgh I don't know if it was a cost-cutting measure that they had to put a very simplistic title card in there, but I, I appreciated that it didn't steal away from the scene. Well, yeah, because especially the, it comes in late. You get no opening credits at all. It's just your guy giving us the the history lesson on, on Stallone and De Niro. So after that, kind of like to add flashy opening credits would be a little too much. So I'm glad that they just got on with the story. So I remember, do we see... Who do we see first? Do we see... Modern day De Niro, or do we see modern day Sly? I'm fairly positive we see De Niro first because he's watching the Jim Lampley special at his yes. bar that he runs. You're right. Which is called like Knockout or something like that. But the, the it's the tale of two Rockies. Uh, you know, it's we have the kid who runs his uh, restaurant slash bar where he you know tells his stories and does his shtick, and then we have. Razor, who is just a real blue collar, he's working construction in a shipyard uh, or just on a dock somewhere. I guess I'd, he's never really, you know, putting the, the metal to the pavement, so I don't really know what he's doing there. But he, he wears a hard hat. I get that much. He's there to inspire everybody. He's, he seems to be pretty popular with the, with the co-workers over there. Oh, yeah. I mean, both of them get the, the aged boxer treatment, the Chuck Wepner treatment of everywhere they go, hey, champ, and then people, you know, <laughs> square up and do like they feign the shadow boxing with them and whatnot. But De Niro, De Niro's kind of like spread out because, yeah, he has his bar, and mm-hmm. uh, but he also sells cars, right? He has a dealership. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So De Niro's much better off in the terms of like the, the cash flow. And that's what it comes down to, essentially. The beginning of the, the whole thing is... Sly needs the money. De Niro needs the redemption. That's the story there. <laughs> Obviously, De Niro was smarter with his money along the way. Uh, and Stallone, uh, I mean, it's it's the story of Rocky. He somehow lost it all and is down on his luck. I think he used the same home in this that he did in Rocky Balboa. Uh, yeah, De Niro has enough money that he can also uh, moonlight as a stand-up comedian. Uh, he is a, he's a, a ventriloquist. ventriloquist. <laughs> yes, he's got his little <laughs> puppet that he talks to. It's ridiculous. And what we learn, though, is as much as Razor would like the cash and the kid would like his redemption, the ability to sleep at night, it's more that the people of Pittsburgh are just obsessed with this third fight. It's all they can talk about when they see these people. You would think after 30 years the talks would dissipate and that it would uh, become just kind of uh, just hypothetical, you know. Uh, for example, in the MMA realm, it was uh, Habib Nurmagomedov and Tony Ferguson. It just got to the point, after about three years, we just all had to accept, look, it's not going to happen. The people of Pittsburgh, their will is much stronger than the MMA community because they it's 30 <laughs> years later and they still are thirsty for this fight. They're still hashtag give us the grudge match. Yes. I just imagine the letters to the editor in like the 90s before you know the internet was really prevalent of just... 
I think this fight should happen, and here's why. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I deserve this fight because I sat through the first two fights. Dear President Clinton, this is why you should make this happen. So we set the table here, and I mentioned that uh, Razor needs the money. And a big part of that is because of the declining health of his... uh, It's his former trainer, right? That's what it sounded like. Lightning uh, Conlon? McQueen. (laughs) (laughs) Alan Arkin. When When I was done with the movie, I just was... When I was recounting the plot to... uh, my dad, I was just, I kept saying Alan Arkin was Sylvester Stallone's dad in this because it really just seems like he's the father figure. They didn't have to church it up and make some story. He can just be his dad. It's fine. His health is declining. He needs money to help out his his friend, his confidant, his father figure. He's in a retirement home. And Julio, you know, this is a star studded event. We get a goddamn cameo from Anthony Anderson here in, in the, you know, the first 15 minutes of the movie. This is after the departed. He already yes. been in the big leagues. He didn't need to lower himself to a, a comedy. But I guess he was like, hey, anything that gets me in the room with De Niro. And then, of course, the joke is that he doesn't get a scene with De Niro. Well, I think it was also just a way for uh, Siegel to stick it to Scorsese. Hey, I got your boy here. I'm just <laughs> using him for a cameo where he's going <laughs> to give uh, Alan Arkin a, a sponge bath. Very strange. That That is one thing I remember from my first viewing i did not retain that anthony anderson was in it and i my notes say anthony anderson and i yelled at the screen is that anthony anderson because uh, an actor of that level especially at that point in time you would have thought he'd been a reoccurring character but just big dick energy from peter siegel here just saying look what we got here just for cameos they were shooting blackish on the lot next door (laughs) he just kind of stopped to take uh to take arcing out to lunch and they're like hey do you want to play this part my notes say here, De Niro, Stallone, grudge match, Arkin, Stallone, dream match. The- <laughs> <laughs> we might as well just go ahead and address it here. Alan Arkin in this movie, uh, I don't know, are you going to disagree that he's the MVP? Yes. Okay. Well, <laughs> I love him. I love him. But but the MVP for me is somebody who, who we mentioned, but he hasn't showed up on the on the recap yet, and that is one Kevin Hart. Okay, well, that's fair, because then we both can agree, because their scenes together are probably the highlight of the movie when they go back and forth. But we talked about before we started recording here, Alan Arkin, Peter Siegel basically just said, hey, I watched Little Miss Sunshine, just do that for me. Just don't swear as much. (laughs) Uh, And there's nothing wrong with that, because that character, the, the grandpa character from Little Miss Sunshine, I mean, it won the goddamn Academy Award. Of course, people want to see... Of course, people want to see more of it. So, Julio, I assume I'm fair in saying that neither of us had an issue with Arkin just extending the role of Edwin Hoover in this. No, no. Just bring it. Make a franchise out of it. Grudge Match 2, as long as Arkin comes back, I don't care if anybody else does. Well, Kevin Hart would be nice, but I understand. (laughs) He's he's bigger than that now. Uh, My only disappointment was that we never got Arkin kind of giving Sly a pep talk where he's like, fuck women fuck a lot of women <laughs> fuck men too yeah just like when kim basinger leaves the room hit it and quit it <laughs> kevin hart julio's mvp as we mentioned shows up he plays the role of dante slate jr uh apparently slate his father was a boxer in a previous life that both kid and razor were familiar with he's here you know right away to bring the laughs he's driving a jalopy around and just is kevin hart is 
turned up to the 10 in this. He is here to approach uh, Stallone initially. I forgot completely that the basically genesis of the fight being made was them making a new version of Fight Night that they needed mocap done for. Mm -hmm. So he approaches Stallone and he says, hey, they're doing this video game. Um, I remember the big one was Fight Night Round 4 was the one that had Ali versus Tyson on the cover. So it was like you could create this historic matchup. And So Kevin Hart, Dante, pitches to him, hey, we, we want you for this video game. You just got to come in and throw some punches. And he says, like, make a few noises. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to kill you. But in a white guy's voice because I don't want to scare people. <laughs> I mean, Kevin Hart's here to bring the laughs right away. He's not here to uh, surprise you by playing a different type of character. This is not the upside, which I referenced earlier. This is just Kevin Hart being Kevin Hart and bless blesses Kevin Hartness. So he says, 15 grand. I'll pay you 15 grand to come do this shot. So we get uh, a recreation of the mo- motion capture scene from Holy Motors with Robert De Niro <laughs> and Sylvester Stallone. They show up on set and, you know, they're in the green suits and they have all the motion capture balls on and. Um, I did remember watching this. This was like a heavy part of the trailer. And I, I guess this there are some really funny moments in this movie and good lines and quippy dialogue. W- would you say this is the, the comedy set piece of the movie, though? It's probably the broadest that the comedy gets. Well, maybe tied up with De Niro having sex in a car with the kid in the front seat. But Oh, God, uh, that kid. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I would say definitely this is the the biggest, like the highest profile set piece. I don't think this is what made me laugh the hardest. Uh, No, yeah, definitely not me either, but this was, I think, mass appeal-wise, just seeing Stallone. This would have been like the, you know, the popcorn scene where people are laughing and choking on their popcorn, the the general movie-going audience, because, you know, you got Stallone and Robert De Niro, two old men, two seniors at this point in these motion capture suits, and then they get into a little bit of a scuffle and are throwing TVs at each other and whatnot. That's what happens. They get in each other's face at this motion capture segment. They didn't think either was going to be there. It leads to them getting into a bit of a brawl. Got a, you know, It's 2013. We all had smartphones at this point, so what happens? Someone pulls out their phone and films it, and it goes viral. So now the demand for the fight has gone outside of the Pittsburgh city limits. There are people in different parts of the country that want to see this. So they get arrested because of this, because they obviously cause property damage. We get some insanely questionable dialogue while they're in prison. (laughs) Uh, De Niro's just running his mouth, and then Stallone says, well, one of you guys rape him already? Uh, Again, we, we talk about things that don't age well. This movie is not Wizard of Oz. It wasn't made in the 30s, and it was... Made in the past decade, it seems like even at that point in time, someone could have been like, mm, church that up a little bit. But Unlike uh, unlike the Niro and Stallone, that line didn't age well. But Julio, I was not anywhere near as concerned with that as I was with how long they were in jail. Because when they come out, the thing has gone viral already and it's been reported on the news and like ESPN has featured it on SportsCenter on their top 10. So we're talking at least multiple days being held in this drunk tank. You know, they're not they're in prison. The green yeah, they're still in the mocap suits. You would think EA or whoever was making the game would say, that's that's our property. Give that shit back. But they're just hanging out, you know, in the drunk tank for four or five days. It's an indictment on the American legal system. It was just very concerning. Yeah, well, much like the the rest of the movie, though, that's it's an indictment also in how we treat our elders. I mean, this entire movie is about how 
they go from being laughed at and from not being taken seriously to finally regaining the respect from not just from the public, but also respect from each other. Uh, upon their release, though, Dante's waiting for him and he's like, you guys have been in there for two weeks. We got a new president. <laughs> and he talks about. Uh, you know, since you've been in the clink, you know, this thing went viral and there's this demand to see the fight and I want to make this happen with y'all. Of course, Stallone is adamant, no, not going to do it. And De Niro wants, you know, he wants, fuck yeah, let's fight. This is where we learn where or why, I should say, Stallone backed out all those years ago and why he has no interest in being around Bobby De Niro and why he has no interest in fighting or doing really anything that would uh, necessitate a cohesion with uh, the kid McDonough, uh, and Robert De Niro explains it only as Robert De Niro can. Ah, I banged his girlfriend, is the, <laughs> the explanation we're given. Instead, Julio, of piecing this together along the way as the movie does, I figure we'll just go ahead and give the exposition of what happened here. Kim Basinger, who shows up in our next scene, was Razor, Stallone's girlfriend. Not side piece, yep. I think a full-time girlfriend. Official. And yeah, they, their Facebook status on Facebook read in a relationship. <laughs> yeah. And she became disenchanted by, you know, him always being in the limelight and not having time for her. So she went and cheated on him with his rival, the kid. Yeah. She wanted to hurt him. Oh, because she thought that he was cheating on her. That's right. That's right. And uh, and so then she had revenge sex with De Niro. And De Niro's like, sure, why not? You're Kim Basinger. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you if you do the time frame there, that would have been like close to original Batman Kim Basinger, and hell yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Julio, I know we're brothers in podcasting, but if that was the same situation with you and I, I'm going to sleep with Kim Basinger. Sorry. I would uh, tip my hat, and I would say, I understand, sir. <laughs> this was my fault. We were Facebook official, and I fucked it up. <laughs> but if you can believe it, uh, the one-time session between the two of them leads to the creation of a child. The aforementioned um, John Bernthal, who plays BJ in this movie. And so Basinger and De Niro have a kid together. Now, I don't know if Stallone knew that part up until where this movie takes place. Oh, he has to have known. Otherwise, he's way too cool about you know the whole thing. Because they meet. Yeah. <laughs> They That's never right. Have like a... Oh yeah, they have like the Pacino and, for lack of content, better example, Pacino <laughs> and De Niro scene, uh, where they meet in the house at like Christmas time, and uh-huh. hey, hey, it's a good kid. <laughs> they create John Bernthal, who then has a child of his own. I don't know this kid's name. I don't know whose kid he is, but I don't he, it, what his family had on the studio that made this movie. What was this? Warner Brothers? You know, this kid, this uh, the grandchild of the, of De Niro in this movie, makes Jake Lloyd look like fucking uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. That's kind of why I wanted to get this out of the way early. One of the few uh, scuffs on the boot that is this movie is definitely the, the kid who plays uh, De Niro's grandson. The but- one element that we cannot spin into something positive. <laughs> We have now created the family tree, so we don't have to do that along the way. Back to the original point. The whole reason that Stallone wants nothing to do with De Niro is because of the infidelity and in many ways felt it derailed his life and took away the love of his life, Sally. Again, Kim Basinger. 
Well, not just that. He, <laughs> this is such a bullshit speech from Stallone. I don't remember if he's telling Arkin or he's telling Kim Basinger at some point in the movie. But he, it's not just that De Niro took Kim Basinger from him. He also took boxing from him. <laughs> <laughs> Much even worse. Though, even though Stallone is the one who decided to retire. But he's putting that on De Niro as well. So Julio Stallone eventually has no choice but to t- to take this fight. It's the he wants to help out Alan Arkin, right? That's the reason he takes it. Uh, yeah, because Alan Arkin he's he's too too much of a handful, too much of a pain in the ass. So he gets kicked out of the the home where they were taking care of him. Yes, because he moves in with uh, Stallone under the bridge where they live. Right, and he's like, "You don't even have a TV? What the fuck?" He said, "I actually one of the lines of dialogue I wrote down because it did make me laugh is Alan Arkin asks him, do you have an iPad?'" And Stallone goes, "No, it's a regular couch." <laughs> God bless. You, you flip, you, you know, the cliches. You turn them on their head. Where the old guy is the technologically savvy one. Well, I mean, I guess they're both old. The older guy. The older, the old guy with an Oscar. <laughs> yes, he should have just had that in a suitcase everywhere he went. You see this shit? <laughs> Stallone acquiesces and agrees to fight. Billy, the kid McDunnan, in a fight billed as Grudgment Day, which is awesome, and I'm kind of shocked hasn't been the title of a really high-profile fight over the last 40 years. The initial press conference is held. Uh, they kind of, I don't want to say rip off, but they do a nod to The Simpsons here. I believe it's The Simpsons where Homer goes into space. They do the press conference. The first question is, is this a joke? And the guy mediating it's <laughs> like, no, next question. The second reporter goes, no, seriously, is this a joke? Uh, and it seems like that's kind of the feel that we get from the very meandering members of the press that are there. They get in all their ribs about being old and hey, fallen, he can't get up, that type of thing. And Stallone just reassures them, you know, I'm going to be in shape and then we'll see what happens. But uh, uh, I, I think that Kevin Hart is the one that really saves the day here, though. And and I just, as, as I was replaying the scene in my mind i just realized that that's really why i like his character so much you know he's funny like we've established like everybody knows kevin hart is funny but also just the fact that he is good at his job you know it's just that he hasn't had the means like the 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 resources to be as good as you know he would like to be but now he's being handed this opportunity and he's doing the best he can with it and so when when the press conference starts turning and nobody seems to be as excited as as he wanted them to be he actually gives a pretty good speech and then he's like and now drop the mic get the hell out of here we're not gonna ha- take any more uh, follow-up questions uh, I-, I thought that was pretty cool I-, I think that that's why i like his character so much because he's actually he's not an idiot you know, it's not that, no. oh, he, he lucked not out Jake into Paul. this. <laughs> yes. So we got to promote the fight, despite, you know, Stallone just kind of wanting to get paid. He doesn't really want to do his work to do it, which is an all-too-common issue with fighters uh, nowadays. The, I mentioned Habib Nurmagomedov earlier, who was the UFC lightweight champion for some time. Dude never really seemed to have an interest in promoting fights, so it would take, like, a Conor McGregor or someone of Eclipse, like a draw, to really help him out there. So fortunately we have kind of a Conor McGregor in the form of Robert De Niro in this. So he's doing his part on it. And then we have the promoter Dante, who's like, well, we still got to get out and promote it more. He even like, uh, does the gimmick where has the, uh, crop duster flying with the flag behind it. Grudgment day, you know, whatever the date is, <laughs> but this is okay. So then that what's going on at the same time is when they go get their physical, because my note says, uh, Stallone recreating the prostate check from Road Trip. Oh, God, I forgot. Any movie with old dudes doing something athletic, you know you're going to have some scene of a prostate exam. And with this, it's, you know, to a 
comically gratuitous extent with the doctor that puts like a gallon of lube on his <laughs> his index and middle finger. And then Stallone he almost does the Sean William Scott sell upon insertion. He just Woof! and like pounds his fist on the desk or the the <laughs> table. It's it's absurd. See, it's uh, it took several years, but uh, he eventually developed the comedic chops that he didn't have in Tango and Cash. We got to assemble our training camps, as we mentioned. Razor Sharp will be training with Alan Arkin, uh, his former coach, and they very very old school, uh, bare bones approach, flipping tires, pulling trucks. You know, it's a big strength and conditioning thing. You know, we get the 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 wink and the nod at Rocky when they go into the the freezer at the local supermarket, and Stallone goes to wind up and punch the beef carcasses, and he goes, "What the hell are you doing? That's not sanitary. We're just here to get some steaks." <laughs> and again, a big part of the selling of that is how great uh, uh, Alan Arkin is. Yeah, I I applaud Peter Siegel's. He, he wasn't afraid of going there. Because you would think that maybe putting yourself in the company... I mean, you already have the comparison to Rocky and Rachel Bull just because of who you cast. To actually go there and kind of sort of mock Rocky? I mean, that's that's dangerous, but he pulls it off. On the other side of the coin, uh, in a bit of a publicity stunt, uh, the kid, Robert De Niro, is going to train with a gym owner, Frankie Bright, played by LL Cool J. Uh, always, but always a delight when he, uh, <laughs> when he stops by. When he enters the fray. Again, it's really just Frankie's mocking the the idea of the fight and not going to offer much assistance. Again, it's just for like publicity that he is putting on this front that he's going to be training Billy. He turns him over to his coach. It's going to be Mikey, played by none other than Joey Coco Diaz. Are you familiar too much with Joey Diaz besides the guy in Spider-Man that says, if you want to get him, you got to get through me? No. <laughs> I didn't even recognize him from that. Uh, Joey Diaz is... Uh, amazing in a word he's a stand-up comedian he's a regular on joe rogan's podcast he has a podcast of his own he's been on tom segura's podcast he he's uh just a really interesting fellow a cuban gentleman who grew up in america has amazing stories and um none of which are very appropriate or things that you should play (laughs) around your significant other or family members but uh coco mikey is his character's name is not much of a trainer he just sits there and the joke is you know he's telling robert de niro he's fat while clearly joey diaz is big he's lost a lot of weight since then though so good on him and you watch uh, grudge match i was like well fuck they can do it (laughs) he's just constantly giving them bad advice and there's the one scene where like de niro doesn't listen to him he listens to bj his son instead and all this transitions we get the comedic relief of joey diaz but it's basically just a means to an end to where billy the kid's corner is going to be his son he's going to be the one training him and helping him get ready so this is really i said that kevin hart was the heart of the movie but but really no this is like a i don't know which animal has multiple hearts is it the cow no that's multiple stomachs well whatever animal has multiple hearts that's this movie because you have, yeah, the Kevin Hart trying to... Uh, Octopus has multiple hearts. There you go. You have the story of Kevin Hart who's trying to uh, redeem his family name because his father was known for having like ripped off a bunch of people. And now he's you know trying to make good and be successful as a promoter. And then you have the, the love story be- between uh, Stallone and Kim Basinger who, you know, she's trying, she seeks him out. She's trying to rekindle that, that relationship. And then you have... What's the most the most effective to me, which was the story between De Niro and uh, and the Punisher, where they yeah. John Verthol seeks him out, just sneaks up on De Niro at the gym, and De Niro says, "Okay, well, let's go have some coffee or something," and uh, and they have a good talk, or well, you know, good in quotation marks, 
where De Niro just gives him his side of the story and tells him, yeah, well, you know, your mom asked me to to stay away, so I stayed away. I mean, we're talking about how John Berthold is very different here than in all the other roles that we know him from. And uh, from the beginning, I mean, he looks like a little kid that's just hurt that he finally found his his long-lost father and it's not what he was hoping for. So that, to me, that drives the movie. And I don't know how you were feeling at this point, Alex, like if you had a preference as far as uh, who you were rooting for in this grudge match to come. But to me, the relationship with the, between John Berthold and Robert De Niro was what really ultimately put me on De Niro's side uh, in this in this confrontation, in this fight. Was it the same for you? Yeah, it's definitely a movie. It's, it's poised like a Rocky where Stallone is obviously the working man hero and the come from behind story is what you want to see. But I really felt for uh, Billy the Kid. He had been living obviously with the the desire to get this win back uh, for years and years. So, yeah, I, I was with you. I, I really was pulling for uh, Billy the Kid towards the end. We kind of already laid out the exposition, but this is where Kim Basinger really becomes a full-fledged member of the cast and shows up. And she is trying to win Razor Sharp back into her life, but obviously there's still that giant elephant in the room of... He even says at one point, it could have been anybody, but you had to pick him. The relationship between De Niro and his son is building, and kind of running parallel to that is the trust that's building back up between Sally and uh, Sharp. She should have just replied, whoa, I could have could have done Arkin. That would have hurt more. <laughs> the training intensifies. Both men are kicking it up a notch. They're intensifying you know, their strength and conditioning, also the sparring. <laughs> the shit that... Alan Arkin's making razor sharp do and just naming there's the one I wrote down he's he's doing the water punching with the dumbbells underwater he's like this is how Joe Frazier won the title and Stallone just goes Joe Frazier never did this I I thought that was really funny in the training camp of De Niro uh known kleptomaniac Sam Hoger is in the background he's a former MMA fighter who was on the first season of the ultimate fighter and got caught like stealing everyone's shit on that show so it was very strange to just kind of see him because he's not really of any boxing notoriety and he's just kind of there sparring with LL Cool J. I know this means nothing to you, Julio, but I, I laughed out loud when I saw that it was Sam Hoger. By now, De Niro is officially being trained by his son. Yeah. Uh, and he's officially met his grandson, the highlight of the movie. <laughs> Woof. Yeah. Uh, what's the kid's name? Trey? Trey. Uh, yeah. They end up having like a family dinner together and that's where my note says, whose kid is this? Because there's a point where like Kim Basinger is like, here's a quarter. Why don't you go play a video game? He's like, this is the best family dinner ever or something. And it's <laughs> we've talked yeah. about on here repeatedly. Don't mean to harp on child actors because it's in a lot of cases something they didn't really ask for. But in this particular case, if we're going to give a fair assessment of the movie, we can't act like this kid was Drew Barrymore in E.T. or anything like that. Yeah, I would never say it's the kid's fault. I would just say that it's, uh, you know, whoever insisted that that line had to stay there, <laughs> that's that's their fault. You could you could cut that out and tell the kid, hey, in this one, you just sit there and you just be quiet. Oh, here we go. So to promote the fight, there's this cross-promotional event with the Ultimate Fighting Championship, the UFC, where Billy the Kid and Razor Sharp go to promote their fight. Uh, they show a shot of a, a, you know me, I had to rewind it to see what the actual fight was because they show the ending sequence of an actual fight. It was um, Bigfoot Silva when he knocked out Alistair Overeem. That would have been like 2011, 2012 maybe. 
so they show up to this event, and this is not uncommon or wasn't uncommon back in the day of uh, the Zufa days of the UFC when there was a movie or you know a fight or something like that coming up that kind of went outside the realms of the UFC. They would there would be people there to promote it. I do not know what the UFC or the sport of mixed martial arts in general got out of this. It seems like they were just like, hey, they want Stallone and De Niro to come do something at our show. Okay. Because basically what happens is they go out there and the, I laughed so fucking hard when it shows them before they walk out to do their interview and Stallone just like does like a, he takes it all in. He looks around the audience and then looks to the octagon cage and he just goes, it's a bunch of nonsense. Uh, <laughs> it it might've been De Niro, but one of them says it's a bunch of nonsense. And I laughed so hard because that is still, you know, in some ways fairly and others not that's boxing purists still feel like it's a circus. And so they go up there and they say that, and God bless him. Mike Goldberg, the guy who interviews him, he used to be the, the real play by play guy for the UFC. And sadly, when the UFC was, uh, sold to uh, an investment firm a few years ago, for whatever reason, they cut Mike Goldberg and hearing his voice was very, it made me very nostalgic and made me miss him. But he like straight up is asking them, what don't you like about this? And uh, like Stallone says, we had a name for people that kicked in boxing, girls, and uh, <laughs> just completely burying the entire sport of MMA. Well, I think if, it's, it's the movie's given MMA an opportunity to show fans that they can have a good sense of humor about themselves. It's like you don't have to take MMA seriously twenty four seven. It really like felt to me we were getting we were approaching the territory of that uh, clip we used in our crash episode of Siskel yelling at Ebert. It's hooey, Roger. It's hooey. <laughs> but who comes to defend the honor of the UFC and mixed martial arts at large? It is Chael P. Sonnen, the largest arm in Westland, Oregon, the former undisputed middleweight champion of the world, uh, who is never going to turn down a buck and. That's God bless him because he's here to say a few lines and be Chael Sonnen and then get punched in the face by um, Sylvester Stallone. Uh, the cool thing about the scene, though, is that I think it's the first time that you see a hint of friendship, of uh, camaraderie between Stallone and De Niro. They kind of join forces making fun of MMA, <laughs> which I cause thought was to, to bury the UFC. <laughs> <laughs> Back at Frankie Bright's gym. Tensions run hot. There's an escalation of words between uh, both Hello Cool J and Robert De Niro. And then so they get in the, the ring and fight it out. And De Niro ends up knocking him out. It's all spurred on by De Niro. And only as De Niro can't, your mother's a whore. And so. <laughs> and uh, he says, and I named my son after her best trick. Isn't that right, BJ? And so, of course, this infuriates Hello Cool J. And. He gets kneed in the balls and punched in the face, and he's down for the count. Well, he deserved it, though. He was because he he was suddenly trying to take over as trainer. Now that that De Niro is kind of a hot property, you know, he he wasn't even the guy that punched the MMA fighter, but he was mm-hmm. standing next to Stallone, so that's enough to, I guess, raise his profile. So now LA Cool J wants to be his trainer, and De Niro's like, "No, you know what? I already have a trainer, and you suck. Uh, your mother's a hole." And then, <laughs> you know, it escalates from there. But uh, that's cool. I was glad that the movie gave it balanced it out because I felt like maybe they were building up uh, Sly a little too much by giving him that big moment at the MMA fight. Yeah. But now, how do you balance it? Well, you have De Niro knock out uh, El Cool J, and now they're <laughs> they're back on even ground. 
we get the Anthony Hopkins level acting from the little boy asking what BJ stands for. And <laughs> if you've ever wanted to hear Robert De Niro say butterscotch jelly beans, this is a movie for you. As yeah, that's I mean that's straight out of the Adam Sandler movie playbook of say something adult. And so when the kids wonder what it is, you have to make up something fun and juvenile. De Niro and uh, Bernthal, they handle it. I think that that's the kind of stuff that it also doesn't go on for too long. Mm-hmm. So, and on top of that, Alex, it actually has an emotional payoff later in the movie. So I'm okay with this. Scene. It does. I forgot about that. Yeah, <laughs> they somehow make butterscotch jelly beans an emotional thing. Outstanding. <laughs> the promotion that was garnered from the incident, at the UFC event, has driven the promotion for the fight overhead, and they need a bigger venue now. They're selling more tickets. There's um, the relationship between Sally and Henry is starting to uh, grow closer together. The time is starting to fade, and the wounds are starting to heal. They go on a dinner date together. Um, this is where we mentioned De Niro just goes off the rails as a terrible grandfather. He's looking after Trey, and he basically leaves him at the bar to just be with the barflies and the bartender and go off and try to shack up with some young lady of the night. And uh, the little kid, as little kids will do, wanders off and tries to start the car, puts it in drive. De Niro pops up in his skivvies from the back seat and hit the brakes. And fortunately, no one's hurt, but it does lead to the police coming and having to take a statement. Uh, BJ comes, gets his son back, is very uh, enraged by it all. It, it It's definitely a setback for those of us in the movie that are watching and pulling for uh, Billy the Kid. You kind of wonder, how, how does he come back from this? Because <laughs> it's pretty bad that, you know, basically when a grandfather kind of maneuvers things in a way to where the police find them in a car, having sex in the backseat of a car with his grandchild in the driver's seat. That's pretty bad. You, you can't just erase that from your memory. So the fact that the movie kind of convincingly gets us to a point where we believe that John Berthold would have forgiven De Niro for that, that's that's pretty impressive. We learn that Razor Sharp Sly is blind in his left eye, I believe it is. Or one eye. I don't know if they actually call it out. But Alan Arkin figures it out. He's like, you're blind. I think he even slaps him. He's like, he can't see it coming. The way that we find out in this movie is just fucking, it shakes you. <laughs> because <laughs> I was not ready for this funny, even somewhat gentle for a sports movie story to suddenly have this pretty brutal car accident mm-hmm. that just comes kind of out of nowhere. It was like the the car crash and whiplash. It just like did not see it coming. Stallone is driving Kim Basinger back home or whatever, and because he's blind, he gets <laughs> he shouldn't be out driving at night, and he gets uh, he gets hit uh, by a truck or something. And thankfully, the only thing that happens is uh, Kim Basinger gets uh, a cut on her forehead, and that's it. But Jesus, that came out of nowhere. That's uh, a good call. The car crash from Whiplash it mirrored that definitely. And then yeah, that, then at the hospital is when Alan Arkin slaps him and like realizes that he's blind in one eye. So I guess it would be the right eye based on the car wreck. He also works in uh, to this. He said, when that UFC bum bitch tried to punch you, he's like, anyone could have seen that coming. And again, just the incessant burial of the UFC. God bless. I don't want us to get past this without calling out what is the best acting from Stallone in the movie, which is before the car crash, when they're um, he's having the dinner date with, uh, with Kim Basinger, and uh, they've established by now that one of Stallone's hobbies is uh, 
just creating little animals from from scrap, from trash, right? He makes little knickknacks. And the joke is that he's making dogs, but everybody thinks they look like mice. That's right. And so he brings one out to the table and shows it to, to Kim B. And he's like, oh, you know, here's like a mouse. He finally says a mouse. And then she goes like, oh, I think it looks like a dog. And Stallone's reaction to that, which is like blink and you miss it, but it's so good that in that moment... He's a better actor than De Niro, than Arkin, than everybody else. It, it's worth like rewinding because I did. I rewinded the movie just to see like if it really, if I was laughing just because of the joke, or if I was laughing because in addition to that, Stallone's reaction had been that good, and it is. He does this thing where, and it's so quick because obviously he's trying to uh, to keep Kim Basinger from noticing that he was pleasantly surprised, but he kind of like looks to the side and and does. It's not even a fist pump, but it just it, the, the way that he celebrates with his arms. Uh, it's a, it's a kind of like a yes, but also like, of course, it, it's great. Yeah, I vaguely remember what you... It's like this momentary, exhaustive celebration of like vindication when he mm-hmm, does it. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's great. Stallone knows what he's doing, man. Even if he doesn't always show it, he knows what he's doing. So because of the blindness, the fight's off. De Niro is obviously pissed. We get... Sly's Oscar scene, in my opinion, where he goes and speaks to, uh, I believe this is where he meets BJ for the first time, but he goes to tell Kim Basinger, I'm going to fight. You know, it's like, I have to. This is this is what I'm here to do. Uh, I agree. It is his Oscar scene. <laughs> which, pretty much, I think there's a montage that separates them, but then that leads into uh, De Niro's Oscar scene, where he goes to the football field and approaches his son, uh, BJ. What's that dude's name? I keep forgetting. John Berthold. John Berthold, but he approaches him and just says, you know, I'm sorry. He talks about, you know, being like an absent father. And uh, this is where he brings the butterscotch jelly beans, correct? Yeah. He's like, I, I got these for Trey and he brings out butterscotch jelly beans. And you're like, oh, it's from the dumb joke from earlier. But then this is where we learn also that, you know, he wasn't always an absent father because he has the scrapbook of all of his son's like accomplishments and, you know, uh, good grades and stuff. It's it's definitely the emotional um Tugs at the heartstrings scene. I thought it was pretty ballsy having two Oscar scenes back to back for your uh, two lead actors. And honestly, it's three Oscar scenes because I didn't write this one as as De Niro's Oscar clip. To me, it's when uh, when he goes to Stallone's house and he starts throwing rocks at the windows <laughs> and you know trying to call oh, him out yeah. and tell him like, "Why did you cancel the fight?" And Stallone comes out and Kim Basinger comes out and De Niro just rips him a new one and you know just has this angry diatribe basically tell him that that's not fair that he can't do that and just the anger it just feels so uh so honest i mean that's just that's the nero cutting loose you know like the scene with bernthal is great too because it's just the sensitive side of the nero but this is this is robert de nero just telling stallone what's what and uh and to stallone's credit he he stands up to him I mean, it's not that suddenly it's not one of those scenes where you're like oh man De Niro just ate him alive and Stallone disappeared in the background. <laughs> no, it's just like they stand toe to toe, like character wise, acting wise. And Kim Basinger is there to also kind of like call him out on their bullshit. So it's great. So the fight's on. Fight night has arrived. We are greeted by the uh, legendary trio of Larry Merchant, Jim Lampley, and Roy Jones Jr. Um, although you definitely wouldn't know it by this uh, movie, Roy Jones Jr. is the member of the commentary team. Uh, he was former multi-time world champion in boxing, one of like one of the most skilled boxers ever, and is an amazing commentator. Great color guy, uh, but again, this is one of those weird examples of when a 
in a movie setting, it just seems so forced and almost like uh, he doesn't know what he's doing type thing. It's it's always fascinating when you come across that in situations like this. But the HBO boxing trio is there. It made me wax poetic for the days of HBO boxing, even though it's only been two years, three years since they stopped airing boxing on HBO. Hearing Jim Lampley's voice takes me to a better place. You know what else is great, Alex? The fucking needle drops in this movie. The final training montage. Please tell me you noticed. Of course you noticed that it's to that that old favorite of ours, How You Like Me Now. Oh my god, I forgot to take note of that. I Probably because I was so captivated by what I was watching, but you're exactly right. Ugh, Eddie Strait pointing that out years and years ago, probably a decade at this point. The the idea of a, any movie that has that song in the trailer for it is an immediate pass or whatever he used to say about it. But yes, it was it was beautiful. And just like the you know the long reflective shots of themselves in the mirror, you know, questioning their their gods and their internal strength and how you like me now. Yep. Uh, and then that the guy goes into uh, I think before the match starts when they're getting everything ready, it's uh, that song War. Yep. And then the Nero comes out to the song from the the opening of the Departed. Uh, Shipping up to Boston by the Dropkick yes. Murphys. Yes. And then Stallone comes out to Back in Black. <laughs> it's just it's amazing. Jim Lampley has the awesome line of, um, uh, well, it looks like no one told the city of Pittsburgh that this fight's a joke. And I always love that. We talked about that in Here Comes the Boom, when a movie that seems really silly and fantastical takes a moment to stop and remind you that it's like what you're watching is really silly. So Jim Lampley saying, you know, everyone else in the world kind of thinks this is a joke. And sadly, since this fight, the idea of the geriatric uh, boxing matches has really risen to more prominence than it did at the time of this. So in many ways, this movie uh, foretold the future. It said, hey, in a few years now, Roy Jones and Mike Tyson are going to fight. Do they get in as good shape as De Niro and Stallone in this movie? Tyson got in really good shape. Uh, Roy Jones, bless his heart, but... He needed a paycheck, and that's what he was there to do. Similar to Chael Sonnen here, because we do get one last shot of him. He's in the crowd watching the fight, and he just gives Stallone the bird. <laughs> it's actually really funny, because Stallone just has his look on his face like, what's your problem? <laughs> oh, man, and speaking of getting that check, Michael Buffer there to say, let's get ready to rumble, and then turn to Peter Siegel and say, all right, give it to me. <laughs> this motherfucker, man, like the... He's been on something else we've done because I I know I've lamented about him and his legacy. Uh, was it ready to rumble? Yes, it was because <laughs> I man, he, WCW was paying that dude like five figures per appearance. He seems kind of like a huge douchebag. So I on one level it's admirable WCW would pay him like fifty grand to come in to do like three minutes of work. But then he would, and like he would get there and not even take the time to learn the wrestlers' names. Like he, like one time, introduced Bret Hart as Bret Clark, and then he just like walked off and told you know <laughs> Bill Shaw or Eric Bischoff or someone, "Give me my money." So seeing him here, at first I rolled my eyes and was like, "Oh God, here we go. He's gonna say you know the words and then get his paycheck." But the hardest I laughed in this entire movie was his introduction of Robert De Niro. I don't know if you took note of it, but he's introducing Robert De Niro and he's reading his cue card, you know, wing, blah, 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 from Pittsburgh. And and then, he, no, 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 he's like fighting out of the McDonough dealership where the <laughs> rates are so low they'll knock you out or 0% financing will knock you out. But he's reading it 
and then he's getting confused while he's reading it, like someone <laughs> slipped that into his cue card. Yep. But he's still reading it out loud. Brilliant. I laughed like that was like a literal belly laugh. I was like roaring at that because then it cuts to De Niro and he like cocks his fist as he's saying it. It's so good. Does I the Fedor fist says, pump? De Niro even says we're open twenty four seven. We're open seven days a week, <laughs> something like that. Well, because it pays off so much. Because you remember LL Cool J, the whole your mother's a whore came from. He told Billy the Kid, he's like, you're the biggest media whore of all. And so it just pays off that like De Niro, even though he's about to satiate this long desire that he had and, you know, potentially win back his self-respect, he still just has to get in, you know, make a, if he can make a dime, he's got to make sure to plug it in there, which so good. Also on top of that, this whole scene was just a bucket of chuckles because we have, um, before they go out, we didn't mention it, but Alan Arkin refers to women vagina in this movie is snapper and that's (laughs) when he turns to stallone before they walk out he's like you see all that talent out there i'm definitely gonna get some snapper tonight or something like that and then kevin harsh just like i'm gonna be sick it's it's one of those it's a bit too raunchy to be in the trailer but that would have been a perfect line to end the trailer on it's in the red band trailer there you go the trailer that played before fucking the expendables or something (laughs) so this fight alex this fight I, I can't trust my reaction because I am not a boxing aficionado. To, so it's it's easy to impress me. <laughs> my note just says, this is a better fight than any of the Rockies, than Raging Bull, any boxing fight I've ever glanced at. But of course, I would say that because to me, it's just, I don't know much about the sport. I don't know how realistic this is. I don't know how familiar this is. So to you, a boxing fan, is this as good as... as as it looks to me, because to me it looks amazing. The the back and forth and the, the stakes, we know that Stallone is half blind, but nobody else knows. Well, I guess, you know, Arkin and Kim Basinger know. You know, De Niro doesn't know. His son doesn't know. Kevin Hart doesn't know. Uh, and the strategies, the, the brutality, the at times you, you feel like Stallone is going to win, at times you feel like De Niro is going to win. And I said earlier, my preference was De Niro, but honestly, the movie had built up both of them as if it could go either way. You know, because it's definitely you could say a classic boxing movie showdown. The, the back and forth of it all, and then eventually the complete baffling of helping each other up after they knock them down <laughs> just to help each other make the final bell. Not really sure the legalities of that within the realm of fighting, but uh, or boxing, I should say. I mean, it definitely adds to the drama here and is something that I wish I would see more of in real fighting. But I do appreciate they show this almost in a montage form, but they take some time to really settle in on some of the aspects of the fight. Because when the fight begins, you know, in a standard boxing movie, you'd think, oh, there's about six or seven minutes of the movie left. No, there's 20 minutes in the movie left here. They make sure to show it in all its glory and to make us feel every bit of that split decision victory at the end for Razor. They go the distance. There's no knockout in this one. Yeah, exactly. Because even Billy the Kid, the, his grandson, said, sorry, you lost, kid. And his son BJ affirms he didn't lose anything. Because they all win in the end. <laughs> they all celebrate together. And the real victory is the boxing friends we made along the way. They both tell each other, no excuses. You know, made the better man win. This was my last, like, roarous laugh of the movie when they're all in the ring and Alan Arkin, I guess, had turned his headset, his uh, hearing aid off. And he just said, what? Fix! Bullshit! And Stallone has to tell him, no, we won. Oh, okay. So the fight's over and we go to three months later and seeing how everything's doing. Razor's still living in the same place. Looks like he's living a better life. And we're seeing that the 
whoring of his image has not ended for uh, Billy McDonough, who is now on Dancing with the Stars, and I do have in my notes here, horrifying Robert De Niro CGI. <laughs> you don't think that's De Niro dancing? It's like the first wave of games on the PSP when the camera was attached <laughs> that you could map your own face onto like a character on it, but it always came out like Jaws from Goldeneye where the faces weren't accurately mapped. It's It's something else. But maybe that's the point that the movie is making, you know? Maybe it's just that the, the De Niro character had licensed his face to Dancing with the Stars. The, the important thing is that Alan Arkin seems to approve. And he's ribbing um, Kevin Hart once again as he's a payoff from earlier in the movie about soaking your feet or fists in horse urine to help rejuvenate him. But he tells Kevin Hart it's vinegar, so... We get the last the last image is Kevin Hart wafting it into his nose. It's strong. <laughs> All right. Julio, we've given it the contrarian's treatment. I think it's time for us to figure out how we both actually feel about it. Let's do it. Let's go to real talk. Q, how you like me now? And then they go, Joe, are you ready? Sit down, take the paper. And I'm like, I got this. Yeah. And I went backwards and he walked in. And the first time I looked at him, uh. cut. <laughs> Joey, what happened? <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing. I just got overwhelmed there for a second. You see, you yeah. see the guy from Goodfellas. Yeah, that's right. You see the devil from Angel Heart. <laughs> yeah. You see Mean Street. All the faces Godfather. that he's been in Godfather. Ugh. And you just choke. Right. I'm, if you want me to tell you the truth, I just choke. <laughs> I choked the first three times. I was like, okay. and then the second day he came up and he was like, "This play, play light." That was the day when oh, I really? had man boobs. Yeah, and I was that day was great. And then there was another scene the next day where he had to call me a, a fat so- fuck, and he came over to me. He goes, "I'm gonna say fat fuck." Does that bother you? If it bothers you, I won't say it. I go. You're Robert De Niro. If you put it in my ass right now, I will not complain. You understand me? At least I got the fucking power that De Niro fucked me in the ass. And we are back, ready for real talk. But before we go into real talk, we're going to go into PP, our patron pitch. This is the segment where we tell patrons what they can expect on our patron channel. And we also let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. So maybe they'll decide to become patrons at the end of this segment. So if you are a patron, you'll get all the stuff that doesn't make it into this episode. We usually have to cut a fair amount of minutes of our episodes just because, you know, for time. And also because sometimes we digress. We'll also have Contrarians After Hours. In which we discuss things that we've seen or that we've read or that we played that obviously have nothing to do with the current episode. And then we also have special patron picks and exclusive episodes for patrons this month. Our patron exclusive is a real talk about the movie Beautiful Girls. Beautiful Girls is one of those movies, much like Alex did with Bachelorette a couple months ago, that I'm like, I don't know that it works with our regular format, but for a, for a patron exclusive, that'll be, I think that that'll be an interesting conversation. That should be coming later this month for patrons everywhere. Now, as far as the after hours segment goes, Alex, what are you bringing to the table? Uh, we're going to talk about Get Out. I watched Get Out for the first time this weekend. And then also just a quick discussion of a 1967 French film called Weekend that I watched this week also. So I'm interested. We never really talked about Get Out. I somehow made it the 
four or five years since it was released, spoiler free. Wow. Uh, so that was, I know. So that was nice. So uh, I think you and I can discuss that because I really don't know how you feel about it. Um, so that's what I'm bringing to the table this time. On my end, you follow me on Twitter, you saw that I was uh, watching A Hard Day's Night and uh, wondering out loud if you were to make that movie today, which band you would use and whether it could even be made, if it would be possible. So I want to talk a little more about that. And then I also watched this movie, this Nicole Kidman vehicle called Destroyer, which I'm going to try to recommend to you. I think it's well worth watching. And actually, I should uh, thank our buddies from Draft Zero because they're the reason I watched it. They they had an episode where they were talking about how the movie handles different timelines. And uh, I mean, I knew that I wanted to watch it, but then just knowing that I had that that podcast episode waiting for me made it so that I would uh, move it up the ladder on priority. So that's what you can expect in Contrarians After Hours. Uh, if you want to check out our Patreon channel, it's patreon.com slash contrarianprime. The name is The Contrarian Supplements. And you can look at our four tiers there. Take a look at them and see uh, which way you would like to contribute if you want to. Yes, our tiers of $1, $3, $5, and $10 get you increasingly uh, more access. But, you know, for the price of just a little bottle of uh, Jack Daniels, you can get some exclusive Contrarians content, even just the $1 tier. Get a little bottle of Jack Daniels, get the $1 donation, listen to some of our exclusive episodes, listen to our King of Comedy episode, and just kind of relax and have a, a fun evening with it all. You can join brand new patron Ryan Swilinski. I hope that's how you pronounce his last name, because I never had to pronounce his last name before. Welcome, Ryan, to the Contrarian Supplements family. He just joined us. I don't know if it was the Crash episode or if it was the Showgirls episode that finally convinced him to uh, to make the jump. But either way, we're happy to have him. That's Ryan from Spit and Polish and the recently mentioned Yum Yum podcast. Uh, so again, <laughs> welcome, Ryan. Patreon.com slash Contrarian Prime. Give it a shot. You shan't regret it. All right. Grudge match. Kind of started off the first portion talking about the posters for this movie. So I think the one they settled on was a copy of The Wrestler, where it was like the sepia tone with De Niro and uh, Stallone resting on the ropes. They're like smiling, though. They're not exhausted like Randy the Ram. But the font is very similar, and yeah, the, the tone of it is almost the same. I mean, this is kind of Stallone's The Wrestler, so I can see why they went with that. I guess if that's where you want to take that, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> or De Niro's the wrestler. It's nobody's the wrestler. Maybe <laughs> Alan Arkin. Uh, one of the posters for it was like, I think it was the original theatrical one, was like a fight poster. Like looked like an old aged thrilling Manila style poster, Rumble in the Jungle type shit. But Stallone looks normal on it. And De Niro is like horrifyingly photoshopped. I don't know if it was a different body they used or something, but his face looks nothing like De Niro, which unfortunately was a trend in this. They obviously had to do a lot more Hollywood magic with De Niro in this, which I don't really get because even by the end, I guess when he had to show him back in his heyday is like ripped and shit. We had to get crazy with it, but he's still like he was a 70 year old man when this was made. I thought he looked pretty presentable by the end of it. We can only hope to look that way when we get to 70, if we get to 70. No joke. And then you got Sly, who, as we've talked about, I think has uh, some chemical advancements, uh, advantages in his uh, physique. But, I mean, he's a 67-year-old man with a fucking six-pack. Come on now. 
Anyway, seems like they couldn't really come up with an idea of how they wanted to market this from a you know physical marketing perspective. With uh, you know some of these posters looking like a boxing movie, and then others looking like a family comedy, and that weird feel good shit, and the lack of preparation or lack of understanding on how to market this movie definitely showed in its box office return. As I mentioned in the first half, a budget of forty million with a box office return of just under forty five million did not translate well to the box office. Do you think the Christmas Day release had anything to do with that? Uh. I mean, it doesn't scream Christmas movie, <laughs> so that's a problem. Like, it really felt like they just put, like, Christmas lights in the background in a few scenes just to, like, justify it, or just to say, yeah, it's a Christmas movie, see? There's no snow. I think that's the main problem. <laughs> I needed snow. Yeah, it's not, as you said, it is not a white Christmas. Do you know what else What else came out? Wolf of Wall Street came out that day. Ooh, no. And we have probably had this discussion before. Because also, that's the same day Walter Mitty came out, and that had a tough time at the box office. Two movies I would rather rewatch than Wolf of Wall Street, Secret Life of Walter Mitty, and uh, Grudge Match. It would take you less time, too. Yeah, I was just about to say, watch both of them, and I'd still have an hour left as <laughs> opposed to watching. So, in addition to competing with The Wolf of Wall Street, Julio, it still was going up against American Hustle, which had been released two weeks previously. On December, looks like, 13th of 2013. Yeah, so... The Nero competing against himself. What? what uh, God. Walter Mitty is actually a really good movie, and we've talked about that before. Going against Scorsese and then going against David O. Russell, you would think that Walter Mitty would be the artsy option on the side. So... I think, yeah, the release date for this was it was very ill-advised. Who did they think they were going to catch? What overflow did they think they were going to catch with this? Boxing fans. On Christmas Day. <laughs> boxing fans who traditionally don't really leave their house that often to begin with. But uh, isn't the 26th Boxing Day? <laughs> oh, God. I... <laughs> Moving on. Yeah, it seems like this was kind of a bad idea <laughs> to release this on Christmas Day. Maybe the movie in general was, but releasing this on Christmas Day with that competition at hand, that's still when I was working at the theater, and I remember thinking that Wolf of Wall Street being released on Christmas Day was a, a bit of a curious decision, but what do I know? Because that movie made $400 million. They couldn't give Grudge Match just a little piece of this. Scorsese couldn't be like, hey, my buddy Bob's got a movie out. Go see that. <laughs> Yeah, the post-credits sequence in Wolf of Wall Street is just Scorsese saying, hey, you have fun? You like boxing? <laughs> you want some laughs? Go, go, go down in a couple theaters. See the movie. <laughs> you like my movie Raging Bull? Never wish there was a sequel? Well, it's nothing like that, but you know, give it a shot. <laughs> we say this did not do well at the box office. It still came in. With a 30%, 31% on Rotten Tomatoes. So despite the fact that, you know, it didn't translate to wide audiences, I'm sure there were people that paid to see it and enjoyed it. And there were clearly some critics that enjoyed it. Julio, what were the positives about this? I have four fresh quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website. Uh, starting with Matthew Razak from Flixist.com. It says, Grudge Match is definitely not your best option in theaters this holiday. Far, 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 far. Really, really, really far from it. That being said, and despite the fact that it is cliche and obvious, the movie delivers some heart. That's why I'm glad that you you told me which movies were playing, because <laughs> this guy, it sounds like he liked everything else that was playing better than uh, 
Grudge Match. But it's still, it's still, he gave him, a, he gave Grudge Match a fresh review on Rotten Tomatoes. Did he, did he spell heart H A R T like Kevin Hart? <laughs> no, but he should have. Damn it. But that was one, two, three, four, five, six fars <laughs> on this sentence. Six fars and three reallys. Um, John Nickham from Kansas City Star says Grudge Match could have been a cash grab disaster. Instead, it's sort of respectable. That's, that's as far as okay. they're going to go. <laughs> sort of respectable. That's That was like a Martin Scorsese little line there. But, you know, it's kind of respectable. <laughs> it's my friend, Bob. Um, <laughs> Rich Klein from contactmusic.com says, It's a little annoying that this high-concept marketing project, in parentheses, Rocky versus Raging Bull, is as entertaining as it is. We want to hate it, as tired actors are sending up their own faded images. Uh, That's pretty similar to uh, the Peter Travers review I read. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone said something similar. Uh, Watching De Niro and Stallone piss all over their most iconic roles provides no pleasure. (laughs) Made me feel sad. Sad, sad. Which, (laughs) I I don't know. Obviously, from an aesthetic standpoint, the idea is Rocky versus uh, Jake LaMotta, but... I didn't feel like they were pissing on their roles. They weren't playing the same characters. It was just kind of it is what it is. Yeah, they're, they're they're very different. I mean, it's not this is not the you know how there's like disaster movie and love movie and scary movie. This is not like the boxing movie where boxing movie. <laughs> yeah, where the characters <laughs> are just parodies of something that you already know from pop culture. This was just its own thing. Also, I don't know that when he's talking about De Niro's faded image, you don't at least. When I think Robert De Niro, I go back to, you know, Goodfellas, Casino, even Taxi Driver before I go to Raging Bull. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Got one more. Wesley Morris from Grandland says, By the time Sylvester Stallone and Robert De Niro start training for the big match, it's called Grutchman Day, you give in because, surprisingly, both actors have reported for duty, especially De Niro. Okay. They, they, They reported for duty. I've seen De Niro do much worse. And I've seen Stallone do much worse. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm on the side. I just kind of sit. I sit in the middle of it. I, I think before before we even get into like the realist of real talks, <laughs> I just want to know who are you rooting for now that we're in real talk. Uh, I guess De Niro probably, just because he's Robert De Niro. His story, I thought. I don't know. At, at a certain point in the movie, it was just it was such a cliche Rocky Balboa story of the underdog fighting that it was like I finally wanted Rocky to lose type thing. <laughs> Uh, of just having someone else have their moment in the sun. I mean, he lost in Rocky Balboa, but I know they filmed multiple endings to the movie, so somewhere on film there's the Robert De Niro wins ending, or Billy the Kid wins. As with any movie like this that has two logical conclusions, I think that's pretty commonplace now in Hollywood that they'll film multiple endings just to avoid spoilers getting out. Uh, Yeah, I I was rooting for De Niro. I was... Rooting for Alan Arkin pretty much the whole time. <laughs> and then I was rooting for it to be over about 90 <laughs> minutes into it. <laughs> you owned this, right? No, no. Oh. Uh, we didn't cover that in the first half. So f- as the internet will do, it always fumbles the ball for you, Julio. It was free on Tubi, but that was last week when it was April. And then on the 1st of May, it went off of Tubi. And then it went on to Hulu for free, but Julio... You did not know that. You ended up paying money to watch Grudgment Day. Yes, I did. I did. Now I know. Beware of the the changing of the guard at the end of the month. (laughs) This has happened to us before, too, with something else. I can't remember what it was. but It it happened to me during uh, 
during our Halloween series. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I watched on Hulu. Quality was good. Uh, I mean, as most streaming places are, they, they bring the bacon. Um, I do not own this. I don't have much of a desire to own this. It was one of those I would pause it to go get a drink or something to eat. I would be just shocked and appalled at how much was left in the movie. Like, I remember <laughs> pausing it like 45 minutes in, and there was an hour and 10 minutes left, and I was like mad. I was like, why? That's early, early... Uh, feedback on grudge match here and real talk is the length was very very unnecessary i really i know i stretched it out there talking about like the releases that came out and trying to figure out why this tanked it obviously didn't tank it made its budget back but it wasn't what you would expect to be based on you know some of the previous like rocky Balbo with that pulled in and typically what a robert de niro movie does but uh I really meant what I said from the marketing to some of the presentation of the movie. It seems to kind of have an identity crisis. It can't really figure out what kind of movie it wants to be. And I think the problem is it kind of, on more than occasions than not, it sides on the let's be a family comedy type movie. And that's where you have like the butterscotch jelly bean shit. (laughs) And then you have like the sentimental beats of like, you know, making good with my son and shit like that. And... It seems like if, with the talent you have involved, if you had actually committed to making this a bit darker and edgier and showing that not having this third fight, while it seems from the outside like Robert De Niro had a successful life, he's still tormented by this. And again, I'm not talking like Nolan Batman dark, but just a little bit more grit to it and a little bit more character to these people. And about you know how Stallone lives a modest life, is not unhappy with his life, but feels like a lot was taken away from him. They they tell you these things in the movie, but then it's sandwiched in between fluff jokes and, you know, um, things to make the audience feel at ease. I felt that while we do get some good acting in this and flashes of brilliance from almost everyone involved, I feel like there was definitely a much better movie to be made with these parts and that it just took the safe route and I feel like it really paid for it and made the people involved look silly on more than one occasion. So you want this to be like like Warrior. I mean Warrior is a completely different story but tone wise. Because Warrior yeah, is not I, like, I think that's the comedy is minimal in that movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is there any comedy in that? Like intentional comedy? Um yeah, I think that's a good analogy. But still you can add some levity to it. Like I want nothing about Alan Arkin changed. And I I think even Kevin Hart's character, there could have been a, a more maniacal edge given to because he's a fucking boxing promoter. They're the scum of the earth. There could have been some, like, yeah, just reptilian aspect added to his character. I don't know, man. I have mixed feelings about it. The length really hurts my ability to objectively analyze it because, like, the end with the fight taking 10 minutes, 15 minutes, like, that was just too much and... The montages that are drawn out to make the audience laugh, it was just a bit much for me. But I do have some positive things to say about it. So that was like my quick review of it, Julio. So hit me with yours first, and then we'll break it down with the the players involved. Um, So to me, actually, I think I'm on the opposite side, Alex. Uh, Although we probably enjoyed it about the same. But uh, I guess we'll, we'll find out when we get to the end of this conversation. But I maybe it's because I am not as as familiar with the idea of old men fighting but to me 
I don't know that I would have been able to take it seriously if if they hadn't treated it mostly as a comedy. Like when you tell me De Niro and Stallone get back in the ring in their late sixties, to me that's a comedy. Like that's the pitch for a comedy. If, if it's if it's going to be like a, a, a serious movie, then I think to me it would have to be even darker than what you want. Like in the in the serious version of that movie, I wouldn't see a room for for a character like Alan Arkins. <laughs> of course, not for Kevin Hart either. This would be just really. If we're gonna get dramatic about old men having to get up in the ring and beat each other to resolve their issues, like that's some heavy shit. And so <laughs> I, it would be there wouldn't be like a middle ground for me there. If if we're gonna try to take it more seriously than the movie does right now. It would have to be just like a fucking Darren Aronofsky. <laughs> then it would be the wrestler, you know? <laughs> there, yeah. And, uh, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love to see that movie. I, I, I think that that movie would be great, but it would be so different from this. I mean, you would have to basically start from scratch other than just the, the basic pitch. And man, I don't know that Stallone can carry that movie. De Niro can probably do it. But Stallone could. If you had Copland Stallone, he could. That's true. That's uh, true. The, he would have to work prop. a lot harder than he does in this movie, though, in, in, in the current yeah. incarnation of Grouch Match. Yeah. And yeah, you would have to get him to take himself out of it and be able to be like, hey, we're trying to make something real here. Did you see the wrestler? Okay, we're trying to do that, but with boxing. <laughs> yeah, he tried to get me. I turned him down. <laughs> Man. This back to back with Tango and Cash, your your Stallone impressions are on point. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess you're right too. the The problem is the biggest problem is that they already did the old man coming back to fight with Rocky Balboa. They already did. Is this a joke? This is a joke, and the whole thing of the HBO boxing team being there and presenting the fight with Mason the Line Dixon and. Like that was a, an exhibition fight for charity or whatever, and then this it's just kind of like, yeah, no one's gonna sanction this, y'all. Like that, that I, I'm exactly with you. That's where it becomes like a comedy, and because it's so silly, in the end. So like the end when it actually comes to the fight, it just feels like a carbon copy of Rocky Balboa, and then the actual fight is so Hollywood bullshit with them helping <laughs> each other up, and yeah, so. Yeah, somewhere this movie we're crafting, we need the comedic relief of Alan Arkin, but then we need them, like, this fight needs to be something more guttural. It can't be this big fancy presentation. So I think you and I are now realizing the strife and struggle that <laughs> Peter Siegel came across, and what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> uh, yeah, it has to be a, they're just fighting in, like, some underground arena. Like a bare knuckle fight, like uh, the end of Snatch type thing, like where Brad Pitt fights in that. They go and because there are old fuckers that fight in bare knuckle boxing in Britain like that still to this day. But again, Peter Siegel, when the director we're working with here, you know his biggest claim to fame is probably Tommy Boy. You should understand kind of what you're in for, and that's kind of what we talk about when we do these. It's it's fine for what it is. I I, I had a, a good enough time watching it. But you see the people involved, you know what they're capable of, and then it's only human nature, at least with the way you and I think about these things, to start like piecing together your own version of how this could be good. Because it sounds really dumb on paper, and it's really dumb in execution. And 
I remember when I went to see it the originally I saw this in the theater when it came out I remembered wanting to be proven wrong wanting to see that you know they actually made something out of this that was salvageable and like I said I didn't remember if I liked it or not I think I probably enjoyed it more than I expected myself to upon rewatch for the podcast here but it just it left me like wanting more and uh, we've talked about De Niro later later in life De Niro and the movies he's made and some of the choices he's made which you know understandably so for personal life and all that shit so like a movie like this I don't know about you there were moments in this where I saw like De Niro like prime De Niro just like flashes of him coming through and it was like fuck yes but then it would just revert back to you know kind of just the I used the word meandering earlier in the describing the movie, and that's kind of what it just felt like. And then Stallone, I really like you called out that one scene. I, were you being serious about his physical acting in the scene with the sculpture? Yes, I loved it. Yeah. That's, that's his best moment in the movie, and his his Oscar clip is also pretty good. Yeah, he, he knows what he's doing in those roles, and like he, for all the jesting and cliched and stereotypes about him, he's, he's good. He's, he's a good actor, and... So, like, exactly what you're talking about and the, the Oscar clip and the same thing with that. There's flashes of brilliance. It's not on par with Rocky Balboa or something like that. Or co- Obviously, it's not Copland, but it's um, everyone has their flashes except, in my opinion, for Kim Basinger. She's just the definition of there. Mm-hmm. Like, she's just there. And it seemed like everyone who made this had a good time doing it. Cool. Uh, but like Kim Basinger, if you were gonna, if I was gonna talk about this movie, she would definitely be the one I point to. That just like nothing she did had any flashes of you know potential or brilliance to me. It was just kind of like she was composite character A or just you know token female character A type thing. Right, but that's that's what they gave her. I mean, you know, that's unlike everybody else. She never gets True. a big moment. Uh, she's there for everybody else's big moments, but she she doesn't get the. The stuff that Alan Arkin does. I mean, she has that speech where she explains why she cheated on on Sly. But even then, the scene favors him as far as performance. You know, the, he gets the big moments because her character is just kind of. I mean, you just said very it. Just, phallocentric movie. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't really get much to do other than I guess be the voice of reason, and so she's automatically the most boring person in the movie. And I, I actually kind of resented. I know she was doing the right thing, but the moment where she goes and tells John Bernthal that Stallone is blind and basically changes the course of the fight in doing so, like it made me mad. Even though I know it's the right thing to do, like morally, it was the right thing to do, <laughs> but it just felt like I don't know. You know, I, I know it's it's stupid macho bullshit, but it made me mad on behalf of Stallone. Because I'm like, he didn't want anybody to know. Yeah. And it made me mad on the side of De Niro. Because I'm like, this fucker is finally getting his comeback and you're taking it from him by basically sabotaging his his strategy by telling his trainer. And again, I mean, if I step back, I know humanly that's the right thing to do. Like Stallone was basically going to kill himself up there on the ring. But I think maybe because the movie hadn't really done anything to, to get me on her side when she makes this decision... I was not invested. And I was like, no, what are you doing? You're ruining it. <laughs> yeah. So th- that's probably the my take on, the, on Kim Basinger is just that it's not on her, but the the writing and the directing, nothing did. They didn't do her any favors. Yeah. And uh, John Bernthal, 
also kind of there, but he even has a few moments of like, that's my dad or, you know, emotional resonating moments. I, I um, think he, he has chemistry with the Nero, like chemistry that that's yeah. alone and Kim Basinger don't have, you know, like the, the, the chemistry that Stallone has with Alan Arkin, the Nero has with Bernthal. And I, I really like the scene where, uh, he asked him to he asked him to train him and they go on they they have like a pretty good back and forth that to me knowing how de niro likes to to improvise when he's in, in certain movies to me that scene read like de niro improvising and john berthel keeping up with him because they go back and forth about the cars that he drives and what he did when he played football and it just felt very but it felt improvised in a good way not the not the, the way that gets under my under my skin and ruins the movies for me this actually felt Not like the oh wow two actors twenty one Jump Street way yes exactly <laughs> uh, and they're, but here's their thing like they're not being funny you know that's the other thing it's not that they're improvising to kind of like one up their punchlines they're just kind of doing that thing where they improvise kind of to 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 showcase the chemistry if if it's there and in this case it is so that's the moment that I think they really won me over so I was like man that was really good and now. He's going to be training him, so you know I'm on their side, and I think that I also I came with the baggage of having a very specific image of John Berthold. It, it's funny because you know I'm used to seeing him as an asshole and a guy that's very complicated, and you know, and then suddenly seeing him play somebody who's a lot simpler, it became a positive. It's like oh, so he can do that. <laughs> he can just be the closest to a regular guy that this movie has he can pull it off so i think that 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 helped him that became an advantage from my end and then you know like i said kevin hart alan arkin they're top of their game yeah that's uh before we get to them i we talked about stallone i gave my thoughts on de niro what were what was your takeaway of de niro in this i i I mean i think it's great i i mean that's not okay so great it's funny because we just did that patron episode for uh, the king of comedy. So of course there are there are levels to this shit when it comes to De Niro. Exactly. Like this is not the king of comedy, De Niro. This is not Goodfellas, De Niro. I think that uh, uh, you know there are times when you watch De Niro and you see something new being created, and there are times when you watch De Niro and you're like, okay, this is this is a familiar tune, just really well played, and. That that was the case with Grudge Match. I'm like, this is not hitting any new notes, and it's not about Raging Bull because honestly, I watched Raging Bull decades ago and I haven't revisited since. So my memory of Raging Bull, other than De Niro gaining a lot of weight at some point, uh, it's you know I'm not it does, I'm not bringing that into this. But it's just the the I guess that specific type of comedy, you know, De Niro being a loudmouth uh, and just being pretty aggressive. That's. I mean, it works in the context of the movie, and it works because the Nero is good, but it's not breaking new ground. You know, I I I think in this case, the <laughs> uh, Nero doesn't benefit from us having watched the game of comedy so recently, because now I'm like, well, this is good, <laughs> but but you, I mean, you, you you have greatness in you, Bob. Yeah. But but I like him. You know, it's it, and he made me laugh several times. And he, was there anything you like cringed at that they made him do? I, I don't think I ever got to cringing. I mean, I some stuff is just silly, you know. Like the, the green suit stuff is silly, and the the stuff with him having sex in the car is silly. It is not, like you know, I cringe when I see the trailers for Bad Grandpa or yeah, you know that shit. This was like right up to the line, but doesn't cross it. 
and, and what I was going to say is that it actually, the the emotional moments work for me. When he gets really emotional in the movie, like when he gets mad and starts breaking Stallone's windows because he's like, yeah. motherfucker, you're cheating me again. You know, that was, I was with it. I was like, oh man, he's he's got that fire back. And uh, and when he gives John Berthold the, the scrapbook, I was like, that's that's cool because it's just so, in the context of the movie, it's it downplays it. You know, like De Niro's, he plays it down in his delivery, and the movie doesn't like, you know, it, the movie could have blown it up that 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 big moment, but instead they just let him walk away, and John Berthold just has a one close up after he looks through the book, and that's enough, you know. And so, uh, how do you feel? What what made you cringe with De Niro? I was literally about to say, well, the thing that made me cringe. Uh... The part where they announce the fight and then De Niro runs out in the street and goes, 30 years, 30 years. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> it was it was one of those things we we're talking about actors that are acting like they don't know how to act. I was like, what the fuck is he doing? Uh, but that seemed to me like my immediate read was like, all right, this was after a long day. He didn't want to be there and they told him they needed to take it this. That's like, at, like I said, at a certain level, though, I admire that an actor that intentionally does something bad or seems like they can't act it's it's uh that was the only part that was like that i meant what i said in the first portion i think the there were some really good laughs the part of them doing the ad for the casino was really funny De, de Niro working in a plug for his dealership into his uh, title card uh his ring introduction excuse me was really funny on like a just kind of throwing my hands up and in a what kind of way the just incessant burial of MMA and the UFC was very funny to me. That was the other thing, the big cameo with Chael Sonnen. It made no sense in the context of this movie. Like people going to see this movie don't know who Chael P. Sonnen is, despite the fact that at one point in time he was a draw. And I mean, by one point in time, I mean like a couple years, maybe he had uh, a good name, but he was never at the level of being like the recognizable face of the sport maybe like Chuck Liddell or they could have done here. And then people, you know, Jane and John Q public that went to see this would have known who that was, but that was really baffling and just kind of felt really shoehorned. Even as someone like me who gets the entirety of the gag, it felt shoehorned and unnecessary to me. I would have rather they had used that time and effort to get more cameos from the boxing world. Cause that would have made more sense in the confines of the movie. That's me griping as a combat sports fan. As a movie fan, that scene and several others just felt completely superfluous overall because the runtime. This is a movie, a classic example of the Mattis rule. If this had been 90 minutes, in no way would I have found any part of it offensive or, you know, quote unquote, bad. No reason for this movie to be two hours long. Uh, I don't think it's Stallone. We talked about already. I was reading while we were doing this. He got nominated for worst actor for the Razzies oh, for that. No. I didn't think he was that bad. No. Especially like. The people he was up against were Adam Sandler and Grown Ups, Ashton Kutcher and Jobs, Johnny Depp and Lone Ranger, and Jaden Smith and After Earth. Stallone is fine, especially yep. in comparison to those. Oh yeah, I agree. I agree. No, he's not. He's just not the Nero, and he's not. At, no. at least to me, he's not. I don't know. That's just like a personal preference. I think you know, I, I, Sly needs to go like a little deeper for me to find him more charismatic it might be leftover resentment from tango and cash you know i literally <laughs> finished editing that 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 episode last night and so i think that there might be some leftover stuff there but like i said he's better than that movie i just i think that i constantly find myself thinking this is good but you could have a, a better actor and it would be even better 
the, yeah. and it, it's like a double-edged sword because there are moments that really work and actually they feel better to me because because it's Stallone and he's like surprising me you know like his Oscar clip and I'm just like all right he brought it and and it works because it, he looks like Stallone and he looks like a you know beaten up dude but yeah no he does not deserve a Razzie God, come on guys <laughs> not for what this are we doing one. here yeah oh no there's other there's definitely other ones you could put that pin on but and then moving on here to the the dual MVP where we give our credit the majority of the credit for the movie on my case Alan Arkin and yours uh, Kevin Hart I think like we talked about and trying to piece together something really good from this project we were given I think they're they're the part of like the family fun comedy that works for me the the aspect of you know I, I wish the Stallone and De Niro side of it was a bit more serious and you could still keep this in for laughs. Kevin Hart is used sparingly enough in this that it never becomes all about Kevin Hart and exhausting sometimes like his comedy can be mm-hmm. and just like his whole, yeah, I'm Kevin Hart thing, which has made him a lot of money. It's just for me personally, it, as we've talked about, listener to the podcast, Eddie Strait will agree with me. The best use of Kevin Hart ever uh, was his role in 40-Year-Old Virgin because you consolidate what he's really good at to one impactful moment. And with this, it's kind of sprinkled throughout it. And I think he, he did really well with what he was given and also like just really spastic and he was given enough to react with. And it was just, it was a novelty to see him interact with Stallone and De Niro. I, I think even if it didn't all land, just the interactions with them were entertaining enough. Yeah, he, he holds his own. He seems pretty fearless <laughs> going against him. <laughs> and, uh, and you were right in Contreras Corner. I mean, the, the best is him and Arkin, which, I mean, they get maybe three scenes together. I don't know if it was. Said I, w- or I would believe if uh, Peter Siegel told me that they just told them, you know, riff mm-hmm. and they filmed it. I-, I would believe that that was just them going back and forth. Yeah, I think my uh, favorite is when uh, Arkin goes to tell him that the the fight is off, that Stallone is not going to do it, and then Arkin walks away, <laughs> and Kevin Hart goes like, "Oh, you're just going to slowly walk away from me. You're not even going to walk away fast." <laughs> uh. One of the reviews here, who was it? John DeFory from The Hollywood Reporter said, the movie only wakes up when Hart and Arkin are on screen, preferably together. <laughs> and I think that kind of, maybe not to that extreme, but it shares the sentiments we had. And yeah, their interactions are great. And I know I, I was really leaning into it hard in the first portion, but that really was. When Alan Arkin was on screen, and even though he's only given you know 20% or whatever you want to say, and even though Peter Siegel, like we... It's kind of a joke, but also true. He just wanted, you know, Grandpa Hoover from <laughs> Little Miss Sunshine and said, just go with it. And that's fine. Like I said, the last line that he has where he, like, starts bitching about the decision because he didn't pay attention to it, that's <laughs> fucking hilarious. That is genuinely funny stuff. So I thought they were both great. And I just realized, as you were talking about Arkin, that really that he does the movie a great service. And, and you could argue maybe it's even that it needed to be more for me which is that he really humanizes Stallone's side of the conflict for me because I was I was thinking about yeah. it. I was like, what is it that doesn't work on that side? It's not just the performance because, I mean, again, we could go back and forth. I was like, I can find as many things that work in Stallone's performance as things that don't. But I think that even though, like, I totally get it, you know, like his girlfriend slept with his sports arch enemy and that sent him into a spiral, right? But... The idea that his response to this was to call off the fight and just retire from <laughs> boxing. 
<laughs> that I, I I think that that needed more what? work. And I don't know that it's just that when when Stallone is explaining that he's just not like like the performance doesn't sell it, or is it just that it doesn't make sense no matter who you put. You know, Anthony Hopkins could be telling me that story and be like, that doesn't make sense, man. Because he says, you know, De Niro took the thing that he loved the most from him. So he wanted to take the thing that loved the most from De Niro. Therefore, he knew that retiring would fuck with De Niro's head. So I guess kind of like on paper, it makes sense. But when you're experiencing the movie, it just never felt to me like like I could really like that felt so artificial. Everything else in the movie, I'm like, I, I, I get it. But but to me, it felt like. Oh, Stallone's character is just kind of bending himself over backwards so that the story can happen this way. Uh, did you have the problem? Or were you like, no, that that's how boxers act. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that, Julio. Several years ago, there was a pretty famous uh, or infamous, depending on your prerogative, fight with uh, Adrian, the problem Broner, and Polly Malinaji, where a lot of the turmoil and bad blood surrounding it had to do with uh, Adrian Broner uh, hooking up with Polly Malinaji's girlfriend, and after Broner won, he said in the post-fight interview, uh, "I took his belt and his girl." And then uh, Polly Malinaji like walks up, and a very memeable thing. Now he's like, "Hey, I respect," and he does the thing where he like puts his hand on the microphone and tries to like push it down so that the people can't hear it. But it's you know the cameras right there and everything, and he's just like, "Hey, I respect that you won, but don't be talking. That's my side piece. Don't be talking about my side piece." And like yells at him. It's <laughs> absolutely absurd i think like the most famous retirements in boxing were for matters of pride but that it was all from things that like spawned in the ring marvin Hagler retired after his fight with uh, sugar ray leonard because he uh he was so disgusted by the decision he thought he'd won and thought the decision was such bullshit that allegedly he legit never put a pair of gloves on again i don't know if i believe that as far but i know he never fought again that's a better story dude <laughs> than what Stallone gave, gave us here. I guess they could do that, but then like the Kim ba- uh, Basinger character kind of falls to the wayside. Um, I mentioned Lennox Lewis. That was clearly a matter of wanting to preserve legacy. He didn't want to get his ass kicked by Vitaly Klitschko. And, you know, there's there's plenty of cases about it. Uh, I don't know of one like this, but again, this is a movie, so that, that you need something like this. Um, Maybe I'm just too old to uh, to really sympathize with somebody who can't get over a woman, I would agree with that. You know, or a partner, just in general. Like you know, it's like yeah, it sucks that you were cheated on, but you're basically giving up on life over that. And I, again, like as I get older, I'm like that's that's for kids, you know. <laughs> yeah, adults kind of like dust themselves off and move on unless they have like a serious problem okay maybe you're actually dealing with depression and then this trigger okay but the movie's not saying that you know the movie's painting it as in like oh well his girlfriend cheated on him and then he decided that he was quitting to her yeah you know what also there is a much better angle to it which is that late in the movie stallone admits that he knows that he only defeated the nero because the nero was not hadn't hadn't trained properly yeah. And man, that to me is much more interesting than oh, the nearest slept with my girlfriend. You know, if they had made it to where Stallone, Stallone's character was actually he didn't want a third match because he was afraid that he would lose to the Nero. You know, he's like, I got lucky and I beat him in the second one because he was he got cocky. But if we fight a third time, he's gonna beat me. So instead I'm just gonna retire. Forget about Kim Basinger. To me, that that's a lot more interesting. You know, he ends up confessing that to, to Alan Arkin. Yeah. 
and it gives De Niro's character a whole lot more like oomph to it. So right, yeah, yeah. And then and then when he when when Salon finally beats him, you know, you're like, okay, well, he's now he's proven himself. <laughs> Here they just threw it kind of like at the very end. It doesn't really matter much. So yeah, figure it out. Come back to us when you, you factored in the feedback. See, <laughs> then we'll see what we get you. Uh, I actually, from the sounds of it, you enjoyed it kind of more than I was expecting you to. I think uh, De, you, the De Niro, Arkin, and Hart trifecta really add some mileage to it. And my thing with the length was just I had seen it before, and then knowing that you could tell this story in a more consolidated way kind of weighed on me. But I would not say this is a bad movie. And. I would not deter anyone away from watching it if they said, hey, should I watch this? I'd be like, yeah, there's plenty about it to get you through one viewing. I'm not going to tell you to go, you know, watch it on Hulu. It's free. Sorry, Julio. Uh, (laughs) I'm not going to tell you to go buy it or anything like that, but there's enough to it that it's worth watching once. Not great, not bad either. Uh, I I think because of that, I fall dead in the middle with a C. Uh, Not plus, minus, none of that bullshit. Just dead in the middle. It's an average movie from a storytelling perspective, but it has some above average moments in it that are worth checking out once. Yeah. I'm a little more positive. I'm going to go with three and a half stars. Uh, I think that the other thing that kind of puts it over the edge for me is the, the De Niro Bernthal relationship. I actually, Mm -hmm. I I really, I like how they played off each other. And uh, I was, I was invested in that relationship. I wish I could remember how much I gave here comes the boom. Because if somebody asked me like to compare it to anything, I'd be like, it's kind of like, like Here Comes a Boom. Well, it's like tone-wise, you know, Here Comes a Boom had that similar thing where it has a lot of silly stuff, but it also kind of was emotional at times. Mm-hmm. So I would say if you like that one, you would like this one and vice versa. I don't think you would say that because from what I remember, you liked Here Comes a Boom a lot more than what it sounds like. It was better uh, than a C for you. Uh, yeah, I'm, I've rewatched Here Comes the Boom recently, and it is good. I think that that's a fair comparison. I would my immediate argument would be there's no performance that's as good in this as Henry Winkler in Here Comes the Boom. <laughs> that would <laughs> that would be my immediate go to. But that that's a really fair comparison, and I think I would recommend them kind of in the same vein. Obviously, one of them makes MMA look a bit more credible than the other one. But <laughs> God, that shit was hilarious. That is gonna wrap up Grudge Match. Our little uh, three-piece in a soda here with uh, De Niro and Stallone. We appreciate them taking the time to spend with us here on The Contrarians. Uh, (laughs) Up next, we had mentioned uh, earlier in The Contrarians Corner, the screenplay writer of this movie, Rodney Rothman, is coming right back into the fold with uh, Spider-Man Into the Universe. Into the (laughs) Spider-Verse. Whatever. Also, while we're talking about what's coming up next, I had the pleasure of guesting once again on Beyond the Box Set, that podcast where they make up sequels to movies that don't have sequels. Uh, I brought something wild to the to the show. Uh, I'm not saying that I brought something wild. I'm sorry, saying I brought the movie Something Wild to the show. It's a Jonathan Demi road comedy. I don't know if you've heard of it, Alex, uh, but I I got the Criterion a while ago and watched it, and I was I was looking for an excuse to rewatch it. I brought it over to John and Harry, and uh, we had uh, a really good talk about that. And then pitched a couple of uh, I think very entertaining sequels to it. So uh, be on the lookout for uh, Beyond the Box Set, the Something Wild episode with yours truly. Uh, and then the time has come, contrarian listeners, uh, the live stream for the Cure. 
is almost upon us. By the time that this episode release will be less than two weeks away. And uh, it's time to announce which movie we'll be doing on our segment. And we'll do that after this promo. My name is Nicholas Haskins, and I'd like a moment of your time to tell you about the fifth annual live stream for The Cure. To do that, I brought along two people whom I couldn't do this event without, Gerald Morris and Dan Brennick. Over the past four years, the live stream for The Cure has raised over $30,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. That contribution is helping to fund research into cancer immunotherapy, training the body's immune system to fight all forms of cancer. This year, we're aiming for our biggest goal yet as we try to raise $15,000 in 50 hours on the air. Tune in May 19th through the 23rd as we're joined live by podcasters and content creators from around the world. With your help, we can continue the fight for a future immune to cancer. Together, we can make a difference. So, Livestream for the Cure 2021 edition. It starts... On Wednesday, May 19th, runs all the way to Sunday, May 23rd. The Contrarians will be on on Saturday, May 22nd at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the poll was won by one M. Night Shyamalan. And we have decided that the movie we're going to do in our segment is The Happening. Alex, you've seen The Happening, right? I saw The Happening in theaters, my friend. I believe I did as well. Uh, It's been a while. (laughs) But that movie stays with you. If any of you haven't seen The Happening yet, well, you have a couple of weeks to watch it. So you're ready when uh, when we get on the live stream. We'll be uh, doing our thing just on a on a shortened format because we have an hour on our segment. So we're going to... The, the good thing is, if you've seen The Happening, you know, not a whole lot of plot. So we should not be Not much to- going on there at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, like the people listening, how surprised they were. I mean, I know Shyamalan has like a embarrassment of riches of rotten films to choose from but i assume i would guess this is where a lot of people thought we were going so i hope we were able to live up to it yeah market uh from the 19th to the 23rd and our show our segment is on the 22nd 4 p.m eastern center time and now alex we can go to perennial plugs let's do and let's start off by giving a thanks to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks they kick us off with last stand and take us home with summer of 99 be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. Our friend, fellow podcaster Hans Rothgieser, he did our logo. He's done all the graphics on our webpage, on our Patreon, on our upcoming merch. Uh, he's a great guy, great artist. You can reach him on Twitter at Mildemonios. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. Or you can email him at Mildemonios at Hotmail.com. Or you can check his website, Mildemonios.pe. That's where you can find information about his novels. He has a bunch of fantasy novels, mostly zombie novels. The most recent one is called Zombos Zombies. It's an anthology. Uh, zombie stories written by different Peruvian authors. The, the gimmick is that each story takes place in the Peruvian region that the author is from. Uh, he also has a couple podcasts. He has Nación Combi, uh, which is about uh, Peruvian current affairs. And he has Marginal, which is about Peruvian economy or just economy in general. And lastly, of course, Zoe Perez, who helps with our social media game. If you aren't already, be sure to head over to Instagram at uh, Contrarian Prime and give us a follow as well as our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash Contrarian Prime. Zoe helps curate our Instagram account, make our graphics, our pictures, our images, makes everything real pretty in ways that Julio and I could not. So Zoe, as always, much appreciated. And that is going to wrap up Grudge Match. 
As mentioned, next time we come to you, it will be into the Spider-Verse, not the universe. Uh, Julio's going to have to help walk me through a lot of this, but I'm sure it'll be a good time. I'm looking forward to it. In the meantime, in the interim, that's going to do it here for us on The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. But even so, I can't go on.